Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 23, 1 Kings chapter 13. Well, we concluded our uh, last lesson as the deluded Jeroboam was proudly standing at the altar of the golden calf that he had erected in Bethel. And acting somewhat like the Pope, one can imagine the eyes of the thousands of the people who were fixed upon him as he regally made his way up that ramp to the smoking fire pit in order to inaugurate this new holiday in the eighth month of the year where one had not existed before, a kind of anti-Sukkot. He had created it in honor of his two golden calf gods. Just as people today will venture substantial distances just to witness the presence of a, of a high head of state, so it was in that era when to get a close-up glimpse of the king usually required a journey and some persistence. Well, it was now time for the most important and solemn part of that service. The king would offer incense to the calf god. But suddenly, the hush, the crowd, the impact of this event is interrupted when a voice from the throngs shouts something to King Jeroboam. The crowd freezes in shock. The king throws a deadly glare at this man. Let's read about this startling moment in 1 Kings 13. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings 13. It will be page 385 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. First Kings 13 verse 1. Just then, as Yeroboam was standing at standing by the altar to burn incense, a man of God came out of Judah, directed to Bethel by a word from Adonai. And by the word from Adonai, he cried out against the altar, Altar! Altar! Here is what Adonai says, A son will be born to the house of David. His name will be Yoshiyahu. And and on you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you. They will burn human bones on you. That same day he also gave a sign. Here's the sign which Adonai has decreed. This altar will be split apart. The ashes on it will be scattered about. And when the king heard what the man of God said, how he denounced the altar in Bethel, Jeroboam took his hand away from the altar and said, Seize him! But his hand, the one he had outstretched against him, shriveled up so that he could not draw it back to himself. Also the altar was split apart, the ashes scattered from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of Adonai. The king then responded to the man of God, Ask now the favor of Adonai, your God. He said, Pray for me that my hand will be restored to me. And the man of God prayed to Adonai, and the king's hand was restored to him, and it became as it had been before. And then The king said to the man of God, Come home with me. Refresh yourself. I'll give you a reward. 
But the man of God replied to the king, Even if you gave me half your household, I would not accept your hospitality, nor will I eat food or drink water in this place, for this is the order I received through the word of Adonai. Don't eat food or drink water. Don't return by the road you took when you came. So he went another way. He didn't return by the road by which he had come to Bethel. Now there lived an old prophet in Bethel. One of his sons came and told him after all the things the man of God had done that day in Bethel. Also they told their father what he had said to the king. And their father asked them, which way did he go? For his sons had seen what road the man of God from Yehud had taken. He then said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and riding on it, he went after the man of God, and he found him sitting under a pistachio tree. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he answered, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me, eat some food. He replied, I can't return with you, or partake of your hospitality, nor will I eat food or drink water with you in this place? Because it was said to me by the word of Adonai, you are not to eat food or drink water there. You're not to go back by the way you came. The other said to him, I too am a prophet, just like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of Adonai and said, bring him back with you to your house so that he can eat food and drink water but he was lying to him. So he went back with him and he did eat food and drink water in his house. And as they were sitting at the table, the word of Adonai came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who had come from you. Here is what Adonai says. Since you rebelled against the word of Adonai and didn't obey the commandment that Adonai your God gave you, but you came back, you ate food and drank water in the place where you were warned not to eat food or drink water, your corpse will not arrive at the tomb of your ancestors. After he had eaten food and drunk, he saddled the donkey for the prophet he had brought back. But after he had gone, a lion encountered the man of God on the road and killed him. His corpse lay there in the road with the donkey and the lion standing next to it. And in time, people passed by and saw the corpse lying in the road with the lion standing next to it. And they came and they told about it in the city where the old prophet lived. And when the prophet who had brought him back from the road heard about it, he said, it is the man of God who rebelled against the word of Adonai. That's why Adonai handed him over to the lion to tear him to pieces and kill, and keep, kill him. In keeping with the word, Adonai spoke to him. And to his sons he said, Saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and found his corpse lying in the road with the donkey and the lion standing next to the corpse. The lion had neither eaten the corpse nor attacked the donkey. The prophet picked up the corpse of the man of God. He laid it on the donkey and he brought it back to the city where he lived to mourn, to bury him. He laid the corpse in his own burial cave and they mourned him. Oh, my brother. And after burying him, he said to his sons, When I die, put me in the burial cave where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones next to his. For the thing he cried by the word of Adonai against the altar in Bethel and against all the temples on the high places near the cities of Samaria, Shamron, will certainly happen. And after this, Yarovam did not turn back from his evil way, but he continued appointing Kohanim 
for the high places from among all the people. He consecrated anyone who wanted to be a priest to the high places. This brought sin to the house of Jeroboam that would eventually cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. The man who dared to confront Jeroboam at this most reverent moment was a stranger to the people of the northern tribes of Israel. And no doubt his accent gave away that he wasn't one of them. Rather, he was a Judahite. And of course, being a member of their enemy tribe made his presence all the more unsettling and confusing. Was he here simply to disrupt and embarrass? We're told that this fellow was a man of God, an Ish Elohim, and that he had come to the ceremony upon a word from Yehovah. And Ish Elohim, no doubt, was some kind of a prophet. But it seems that at least to the people of that era, there was some subtle distinction between someone called an Ish Elohim and the more typical biblical prophet that they called a Navi. Now, try as scholars might, they've not really been able to identify the nature of this distinction between the two titles. So perhaps in practice, there really wasn't any. Now, the rabbis have an explanation for the use of these two different terms for a prophet, and I must admit it's a, it's a compelling argument. In the part of our narrative where this Ish Elohim from Judah interacts with the Navi from Bethel, the purpose for using these two different terms is to distinguish between the genuine prophet, the Ish Elohim, and the false prophet, the Navi. And that's backed up by the fact that neither prophet is referred to by name. So if both unnamed prophets in the story were called Navi, it would be an insult to the genuine one or even make the story kind of hard to follow. However, if we look at Second Chronicles 9.29 and 12.15, we do find mention of a prophet named Yido or Ido who was a seer and he interacted both with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Second Chronicles 9.29 says, Other activities of Shlomo beginning, from beginning to end are written in the records of Nathan the prophet, in the prophecy of Ahiah of Shiloh, and in the visions of Yedu the seer concerning Jeroboam the son of Nevat. In Second Chronicles 12.15, the activities of Rehoboam from beginning to end are written in the genealogically organized histories of Shamiah the prophet and Edo the seer. But there were continual wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So apparently, our Ish Elohim from Judah was named Yido or, or Edo. And the false prophet has remained, has remained anonymous to history. Notice that we're still, though, just in the first verse of chapter 13. And there is another interesting phrase not to be easily stepped over. In Hebrew, it is Ish Elohim va Midbar Yehoveh. 
Okay, and in English it is a man of God from Judah came by a word of Yehovah. The key phrase here is a word from Yehovah. Now many translations make it because of a word from Yehovah or by the word of Yehovah or some such rendering. But the grammar demands that it is by a word of Yehovah. Now the reason I focus on this is because the intent is to say that the man came not because of a decision that he made to come or simply because he was a prophet so it was his job to deliver God's word to Jeroboam but because the inherent power in God's word virtually lifted him into action and brought him to Bethel. The Ish Elohim from Judah as the bearer of God's word was in a sense powerless to do anything else but to go. To deliver God's oracle. And of course, we see the power of God's word go to work on Jeroboam. And in verse 2, the man of God unleashes a curse upon the golden calf altar. Yes, not upon Jeroboam per se, but upon the altar. The sages say that he said the word altar twice. Altar, altar. Because this was alluding to the two altars. One in Dan, one in Bethel that Jeroboam had built. Why was the altar cursed? Because that altar kept the people from going to Solomon's authorized temple in Jerusalem. And thus the false altar was a cause for God's wrath to fall upon the people of the northern, the ten northern tribes. Now, as part of the curse, a prophecy was uttered that some years into the future a son would be born to the Davidic dynasty, meaning this descendant would be from King David's line, and the king would desecrate this heathen altar, kill the wicked priests who weren't of the Levite line, those who were rendering it service. Part of the desecration was to be that human bones would be burned on that altar instead of animal bones. And the implication is that those human bones would be of those who had paid homage to this altar, especially the priests. The prophecy was fulfilled by David's descendant, Josiah, or the complete Jewish Bible, Yoshiyahu, during his reign over Judah from 641 to 609 BC. Listen to this from 2 Kings 23.16. Then as Yoshiao was turning around, he noticed the burial caves that were there on the mountain. So he sent and had the bones taken out of the burial caves and he burned them on the altar, thus desecrating it, in keeping with the word of Adonai, which the man of God, the Ish Elohim, had proclaimed, foretelling that these things would happen. Thus we see that even those who were long dead had their bones removed from their bone boxes called ossuaries 
from the burial caves and then burned up to ash on the pagan altars that Jeroboam first ordained. It is believed that the bones of the dead were probably those of the false priests. Why burn up their bones? Because proper burial was terribly important to the Israelite death cult. And in some unexplained way, the memory of the dead was in their skeletal remains. And if the memory remained, then in an ethereal and hazy way they lived on. This burning up to destruction of their bones was symbolic of a final, complete end to their existence on any level. Does that have a ring to it that's familiar to modern day Christians? Listen to Revelation 20, 11-15. Next I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, but no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, both great and small, standing in front of the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, the book of life. The dead were judged from what was written in the books according to what they had done. The sea gave up the dead in it. Death and Sheol gave up the death, uh, dead in them. They were judged each according to what they had done. Then death and Sheol were hurled into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was hurled into the lake of fire. The parallel is just too close not to see a pattern. The dead are only physically dead. Some essence of the dead lives on, what we call the soul or the spirit. Josiah opened the graves of the already dead. He took up their bones that were representative of their ongoing life essence. He burned them up on the pagan altar where they worshipped those false gods. At the end of human history, the Lord is going to open up the graves of the already dead and take the remaining life essence of those who are not found in the book of life, meaning the unrighteous dead, and together with the evil one whom they worship by denying God will burn them up to a final destruction whereby no essence of them exists on any level. After the man of God had cursed the altar with a prophetic curse, he then offered a sign or a proof that what he had said was from God. It was a sealed promise. It was unalterable. And he says in verse 3 that the altar will spit and the split and the, and the fat-filled ashes, in Hebrew the deshen, from the sacrifices will spill upon the ground that will be scattered. The splitting of the altar symbolized its future destruction. The ashes falling to the dirt were representative of those priests who had served this altar over the centuries, whose remains would be exhumed and then burned up 
to unclean ashes. An interesting question arises now for us to ponder. And it's one that Christian denominations and rabbis and sages, for that matter, have differing viewpoints on and even at times brings about the establishment of inflexible doctrines to explain it. It is the matter of God's foreknowledge versus man's free will. That is, now that the Lord had issued this prophecy, was Jeroboam's path set in concrete? Now that the Lord had decreed it, was Jeroboam virtually unable to repent and change course? And unlike so many of the oracles that we have read in the Bible thus far, that were essentially warnings and threats of dire consequences if someone didn't change their ways, there's none of that present here. There is no real or implied call for Jeroboam to repent from his idolatry and thus avert personal and national disaster. It's assumed that he will not. The Ish Elohim presented this oracle as a fact already established in heaven. It's a closed matter. And therefore, one that has no alternative but to play out that way on earth. Now I think it's fair to ask where Jeroboam's free will comes into play in this matter. Where is the free will of the many generations of false priests who will arise to serve the altar of this cult of which Jeroboam is the founder? Are the fates of these unborn generations of priests therefore already determined for them in advance? Or are we merely getting an expression not of God's essentially hardening Jeroboam's heart as he did with Pharaoh, thus assuring Egypt's destruction, but rather of God foreknowing all that will play out. That is, a man makes his choices and the consequences inevitably flow from the course that he chooses. It's my belief that this was not the removal of Jeroboam's or of the future priest's free will by the Lord. But instead, this prophetic utterance was the Lord saying that Jeroboam had already hardened his own heart and committed himself to follow a path that would ensnare an order of false priests who would just follow their natures to a destructive end. Truly, this is one of the great mysteries of our God. How He can look to the future, determine an end result, and yet simultaneously permit each of us to operate within our own free wills that wind up bringing about the very thing He's ordained centuries earlier, it just boggles the mind. Yet it's so. That said, I think it's probably better to resist establishing theological labels and fixed, fixed doctrines that purport to have a full understanding of not only the Lord's mind on this issue, but how it is that he makes his determination and brings it about. Well, King Jeroboam responded about like one would think he might. 
deeply offended, he stopped what he was doing, he raised his arm and he pointed at that Ish Elohim from Judah and he ordered the man to be arrested. Instantly, Jeroboam's arm froze. In complete paralysis, Jeroboam was unable to retract his arm from being outstretched. At that moment, the altar where he stood split. Ashes fell to the ground. There is no mention of an earthquake. Everything that happened was supernatural. Jeroboam instantly understood the source of these twin disasters and humbled he spoke to the Ish Elohim and asked that his God would allow his arm to function from its humiliating condition. It should be noticed that Jeroboam spoke of Yehovah as the Ish Elohim's God, not his own. And whether he meant that fully literally is doubtful. He likely intended in it the sense of the man of God being Yehovah's prophet, so he had the position and the right to beseech the Lord to pray, uh, to pray on Jeroboam's behalf. And yet, what man who trusts the Lord would refer to him as your God? Jeroboam was now a lost soul. He was separated on every level from Yehovah. He hadn't misplaced or lost his relationship with God. He had willingly renounced it in exchange for chasing after other gods created in his own mind. The man of God prayed. Jeroboam's arm was restored. And in verses 7 and 8... The king decided he would try to flatter the Ish Elohim and just ignore this prophecy of doom. And in typical Middle Eastern thought, the king ascribed the power that caused the altar to split and his arm to wither to this man of God from Judah. So by offering the most gracious hospitality that only a king could, the hope was that not only would the prophecy be annulled, but he might even receive the reward of a blessing. But contained in the dialogue are specific instructions to the man of God about what he's prohibited from. And those things include not eating food, not drinking water and not taking the same route back to Judah that he took going up to Bethel. And when he was in the presence of the king and then departed Bethel, he followed those instructions. Why not eat food and drink water? Because Bethel was now under the ban. It was off limits to every aspect of God's followers. The uncleanness of idol worship was so thorough that even the food and water supply of Badel was now spiritually impure. <clears throat> Why not return home by the same road? Even the way by which this special messenger had come was consecrated. And the unholy dust from Badel that was now on his sandals would have polluted the pathway. Now, however, we see another side of this Ish Elohim. 
It's not so flattering. Verse 11, an old prophet, a Zaken Navi, who lived in Bethel, heard his son uh, heard from his sons about this great flap at the altar between Jeroboam and this man of God from Judah. And it piqued his interest. And he was determined that he must talk with this Ish Elohim. Now this old Navi from Bethel was essentially a false prophet. In fact, he was likely a prophet of Baal. Because 2 Kings 23, uh, in 2 Kings 23, we're told that he was from Shamron, Samaria, which was a Baal stronghold at that time. There it says, then he asked, <clears throat> this monument here that I'm looking at, what is it? <clears throat> Excuse me. And the men of the city told him, it marks the burial cave of the man of God who came from Yehuda and foretold the very things you have done to the altar of Bethel. And he replied, let him be, no one is to move his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed along with the bones of the old prophet who had come from Shamron. So anxious was this Navi to visit the man of God that he immediately got into his donkey. He rode down the pathway by which the man of God was returning home. And in fourteen, verse 14, he catches up with him. He coaxes him into coming back to Bedel to be shown hospitality. And he says, come home with me, have a meal. <clears throat> the Ish Elohim replies, the Lord told him, he can't do that. And so he repeats word for word to the Navi all the instructions God had given directly to him. The Navi from Bethel brushes, brushes it all aside. He says, well, I too am a prophet. In other words, he says, they're colleagues of the same profession. So they must have much in common. But then in verse 18, this Navi proceeds to lie to the man of God from Judah and he explains that a malach an angel a messenger came to him and essentially overturned everything that God had instructed the Ish Elohim and for some inexplicable reason the man of God believes him he follows the Navi to his home let me pause for a moment and say that what he did was as wrong as the false prophet who lied to get him to come. In fact, we see that the Ish Elohim behaved in a way of another infamous prophet that we read about a long time ago, Balaam. Recall the story in Numbers of Balaam. The pagan seer who was called first by the king of Moab to curse Israel. But he wound up blessing them after Jehovah confronted him. See, Balaam was what we today might call a deist. He definitely believed in Jehovah, but he also believed in all the other gods. He would answer the call of most any god in order to please them. So like Balaam, this man of God from Judah wasn't all that dedicated or loyal to Jehovah. Rather, he was like a a container for hire. He was like an MP3 player or a blank CD disc. He would willingly deliver 
whatever he was filled up with. The content, the source, irrelevant. It brings to mind, frankly, the true sense of the word legalist. He would mechanically accept and recite whatever he felt he was told without regard for the content or its trustworthiness. Have you not heard recently of a growing number of even mainstream Christian leaders and denominations who say they respect all faiths, all religions? It doesn't matter what anyone believes as long as they have faith in something. Trust in a greater being than themselves is what's important regardless of that spiritual being's name, the culture that honors him. That is essentially the state of mind of the Ish Elohim from Judah in our story. Then as the two men are dining, the prophet from Bethel suddenly receives a true word from Yehovah. Yes, this prophet who lied to the man of God from Judah and who likely was a completely pagan prophet is visited by the God of Israel. And he's given an oracle to say to his guest. So we see that both the Navi and the Ish Elohim operated in the manner of Baal, or rather Balaam. And the message is the ultimate irony. From the mouth of the liar... Now came the word that because the man of God believed him and came to his home in Bedel and ate and drank in rebellion to Jehovah, he was going to die. And his corpse would lie would not lie with his ancestors. I mean, what are we to take from this contorted situation? <clears throat> For one thing, it again draws a spotlight on one of my pet peeves. People who say they have a word from the Lord for you. And often this word contradicts what up to now you felt the Lord was telling you to do or not to do. So one element of this story shows this that we are personally responsible to carry out what God tells us to carry out. And if he wants that changed, highly unlikely, he'll tell you personally. It's not going to come from somebody else. And another aspect is the use of religious lingo to manipulate. I often say that the church has its own language that I call Christianese. It's a language that few outsiders even understand. These two men in our story held a common bond, a common profession, and thus they spoke a common language. They spoke prophetes. (laughs) They understood one another like few others could. They walked in an exclusive circle of a handful of other prophets and seers. So when this old prophet from Bethel was so very thirsty to have some some fellowship and conversation with a colleague, he used the familiar lingo of prophets to get what he wanted. 
No doubt his mind wasn't necessarily on evil. He just told a small white fib using prophet lingo that he knew would disarm the other prophet. An angel had come to him and told him the other and, and, and told the other prophet, Oh, forget everything God told you. After all, what could possibly be harmful in accepting the hospitality from another godly man? He had no intent on causing harm. So today, when we end the conversation by saying, I'll pray for you, we don't always literally mean that. When we confirm that the Lord wants what the other person says they want, is that really true? Are we merely being kind in a Christian sort of way? When we say, I have a word for the Lord from the Lord for you, is it perhaps just a personal thought that makes us feel a little pious? Or maybe we hope it will make the other person feel good. Maybe we think they need what seems to us to be godly advice. And so we tell them that God wants us to tell them something. See, it all sounds so gracious and wonderful, but our story of these two prophets demonstrates the, the darker side of such careless talk. But there are some other principles that flow to the surface. First, the Word of God does not contradict itself. Second, we cannot break God's scriptural commandments in the name of supposedly following or pleasing God. And third, God's direct commandment to us is not amendable by somebody else. On the surface, these sound so basic. Yet many of us routinely violate these principles to our or someone else's detriment. And we're blind to it. Just as the two prophets of our story. And that's because it feels so, custom, uh, so, so uh, comfortable and customary for us. Well, after the meal, the prophet from Judah leaves his new friend. And on his way back, a lion attacks and kills him. The prophecy of the prophet from Bethel was true. But in further proof that in reality this death was at the hand of God, the lion not only doesn't mutilate or eat the corpse, he didn't even attack the donkey. Even more, the lion stands next to the corpse along with the donkey. Now, none of this would be the natural way that either a lion or a donkey would behave. People passing by saw this befuddling sight. And when some of them arrived in Bethel, of course they couldn't wait to tell everybody about what they'd witnessed. The story circulated. Pretty soon it reached the ears of the old prophet of Bethel, who, well, he immediately knew who the victim was. It was this fulfillment of God's oracle to him. Now, still behaving as a colleague... The old prophet travels by donkey to place the corpse uh, to the place this corpse is lying. He finds the lion still standing guard. He fetches the body and he brings it home. And the old prophet had such great respect 
for the Ish Elohim and probably felt some measure of responsibility for what had happened, that he buried him in his family grave plot and he mourned over him. Not only that, he ordered that when he died, he should be buried side by side with this man. He also told his sons that there was no longer any doubt in him that the curse that the dead prophet had issued against the golden calf altar and by extension uh, upon Jeroboam and all those priests was certain to come to pass. Those two things are actually tied together, you see. Because that old prophet of Baal knew that in time his bones might be the ones that were exhumed and burned up on the altar by this mysterious future descendant of David. So he figured that if he was buried along with the remains of the man of God from Judah, who had been the conveyor of God's curse, that maybe his bones would escape that fate. And of course the outcome is what the old Navi had hoped for, and we read about it a few minutes ago in 2 Kings 23. Well, verse 33 says that after this event, Jeroboam still didn't change his ways. In other words, King Jeroboam, who had his arm withered by God, was present as his wicked altar was cracked and broken, heard the prophet's message from God loud and clear, was told of the prophet's death, the lion that killed him and stood guard over the body, how the old Navi from Bethel had prophesied it all. The king still refused to repent. He went right back to appointing unqualified priests to the pagan altars he had erected. Nothing, it seems, would cause Jeroboam to cease his spiritual rebellion. And of course, it doomed his monarchy and his dynasty. Well, the final verse of chapter 13 sums up this tragedy. What began with such promise that the Lord was willing to give Jeroboam an enduring dynasty on condition of obedience. Well, it ended in the worst possible condemnation of him. His successors failed to stop Israel's tailspin into idolatry and into degradation and within a little more than 130 years the ten northern tribes were exiled by the Assyrians from their lush and fertile territory and the legend of the ten lost tribes of Israel was born. These ten tribes exiled has lasted for 2,700 years. And only today, today, has Ezekiel's prophecy for their restoration to the land begun in earnest. Bad leadership, especially ungodly leadership, can be devastating to a nation for generations not just to the next election.